from Outside Magazine and PRX. This is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics with Chris Katz. It's hard to pin down exactly what Tim Ferriss is. Sure, he's the author of a couple bestsellers, like The 4-Hour Workweek and The 4-Hour Body. And he wrote another bestseller about food. But he's also a kickboxing champion, a horseback archer, and the first American in history to hold a Guinness World Record in tango. And as you can see in the October issue of Outside, he's also an acro-yogist. Acro-yoga is partner acrobatics. Which sometimes leads to speaking French. I found an acro-yoga jam session in one of the parks next to the, next to the Louvre. Which sometimes leads to saying what we're all thinking when we hear him speaking French. The Louvre, what am I doing? I'm sounding like some... <laughs> I was trying to learn French, but God, that sounds pompous. We like Tim Ferriss a lot at Outside. Because in an age when so many of our celebrities are famous for doing nothing... Ferris is famous for doing everything. In his constant quest for self-improvement, he launches himself at the frontiers of science, pushing the limits of exercise, nutrition, and psychedelic drugs, then tells the rest of us about it, diarrhea and all. He's perfected the art of oversharing. He spoke with Outside's editor-in-chief, Chris Kais. A quick disclaimer before we get started, Tim Ferris is an open book, but he is not a doctor. And he really is pretty much completely open about his body and how it works. Because that's what he does. Chris takes it from here. I, I want to start just early on for you. I know you grew up on Long Island. Um, you were pretty small for your size. You were premature. You, and you, you got into wrestling early on. And that was kind of where the, the self-experimentation began. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, because I was very, very tiny up until about sixth grade. And my mom figured out that she could kill two birds with one stone in a sense because kitty wrestling, which was a program that existed, allowed me to, number one, compete in a weight class so I could actually have a chance of succeeding. And number two, as other moms told her, would be a very good opportunity for her to decrease my hyperactivity because I'm so exhausted <laughs> by the time I finished the after school wrestling that I would just face plant after doing my homework. So that was the beginning. And in part, the experimentation coincided with that in large part because uh, I had very poor endurance. I still do. And that's, uh, you, could, you could attribute that in part to the left lung and respiratory thermoregulatory issues that I still have from being born premature. I was in the ICU for a very long time, had, I think it was five whole body transfusions effectively. Um, I had to have my blood run through an oxygenator. And the advantage that I found was cutting weight. I was able to cut weight very, very effectively. Now, I wasn't doing that in the very, very early days, but as it became more competitive, uh, certainly by the time I was in high school and uh, ended up competing in the nationals towards the end of high school, I was extremely adept at cutting weight. And to do that safely and effectively, i.e. to not have your organs fail and to maintain your performance, 
you need to get a you need to develop a basic understanding of say the sodium potassium pumps and electrolytes and how your body functions what your kidneys do etc so that was really i think the catalyst and the trigger for a lot of the self-experimentation that came later what would you say was your first uh, that you would classify as self-experimentation? And, and was it was it something pushed by uh, uh, one of your wrestling coaches or was it something that completely came from from your own motivation? I mean, I think that in you know, in a sense, all of life is an experiment. So we're constantly trying new things. But if we're if we're limiting ourselves to the physical and uh, let's just say performance enhancement or wrestling and that that's where I did a lot of my guinea pig tests probably using something like dandelion root which is available over the counter it's very easy to find at the time it, uh, it, it, it wasn't excessively expensive for me and it's a potassium it's effectively a, a potassium sparing diuretic so I was able to use that uh, to cut water weight while minimizing the likelihood of say cramping right and there's a lot more to it and this is in high, in high school? school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, another discovery was that <clears throat> many people experience this. If you go into a dry sauna, it takes longer to sweat than if you go into a steam room. Well, why is that at the same temperature? It's the humidity. And so I, I extrapolated that to the its logical extreme, which was what if it were 100% humidity, i.e. if I were in a hot bath and I realized that I could cut weight most uh, under, not duress, but under a short timeline, I could do it most quickly in a hot bath. And then uh, I would take breaks to cool off with a bag of ice on my head. And the reason that you wouldn't, say, take a cold shower, as a lot of my uh, competitors and also uh, teammates realized, is that if you go to sleep, you'll probably lose, if you weigh more, more than 150 pounds, you probably lose a pound of water overnight, very typical at least. And then if you take a shower in the morning, if you're very dehydrated, you could absorb a pound to two pounds through the shower itself. So these are all things that I would put down in my mental or physical notebook, and it became a best practices playbook of sorts. So that's those are some of the early days. I mean, that was way back in the day. This is when I'm 15, 16, 17, maybe. So um, I think by the time the four-hour body came came out and you, you were working on that, you were very, very methodical about um, your self-experimentation. But you do allude to sometimes like early on, you know, when you were younger and probably, you know, more fearless <laughs> Talk about some of your experiences with that and were there other sort of what you would categorize as mistakes along the way where you, where you pushed the self-experimentation too far? Oh, I mean, tons, tons of experiments uh, and tons of mistakes. And that's the nature of experimentation right? is uh, yeah. you're not experimenting if everything works out uh, by, um, by definition, really. I mean, you're forming a hypothesis, you're testing it, and it confirms or refutes the hypothesis or lands somewhere in between. And uh, in my case, look, there are dumb mistakes of youth. There are dangerous mistakes that I would encourage people to certainly avoid. Um, and then there's self-learning along the path throughout it all. So uh, as one example, you know, himbean hydrochloride, for instance, 
back in the day that was rumored to be very effective for removing stubborn body fat in different capacities. And I, I mean, I remember taking Yohimbian at one point, probably in combination with something else to enhance the effects. And it was such a strong beta agonist, right? It was activating what you would consider a lot of the autonomous nervous system functions that my I, my mouth just filled up with saliva as if I were going to vomit for about an hour. And I had such rapid heart rate, I thought I was going <laughs> to drop dead. This is not something you want to do. And uh, so th- there are a few things, right? I mean, I've had l- more colorful, maybe less dangerous incidents where for, I, I had done fair amount of research looking at resveratrol, for instance, which is a popular topic of conversation because it is in red wine. So people feel like this is going to give them permission to drink a lot of red wine. And it activates the sirtuin genes or is thought to activate genes involved with longevity, right? Hence the uh, a lot of the headlines, which were Bad science. Uh, but what I was very interested in is not the longevity, because that's extremely difficult to test in yourself, and certainly you're not going to know until you're dead, and then you're dead, uh, is the effects on endurance. So there's a there's a video of, I think it's Super Rat, they call it, set to Superman music in a split screen, I think it might be on YouTube, with Super Rat, who is dosed with resveratrol, and then uh, Control Rat. And Super Rat runs for, or Super Mouse, I'm not sure, runs for two or three times the uh, the duration that the control mouse can run. I mean, that it was a very non-trivial difference. So I decided before a running test, I was at the Sports uh, Science Institute of South Africa at the time in Cape Town. They were going to put me through one of their running tests, which, uh, for which I would wear a heart rate monitor and so on and so forth. And they would look at my recovery ability, all these things. I was very excited about it. And I am not, I'm not much of a runner. I, that's just not something that I do. And I, I decided that I would get, I think it was about 60 or 90 days worth of resveratrol in capsules, which I did. And, uh, I looked at the milligrams per kilograms and I consumed probably 60 days worth of (laughs) resveratrol in one sitting uh, prior to this, this running test. And what I didn't realize was, you know, halfway through sitting down and having Tertius explain this running test to me, maybe like an hour later, I started sweating profusely, like this disgusting cold sweat. I was very uncomfortable. And uh, lo and behold, my GI tract was not having uh, a lot of fun with the 60-day supply of resveratrol. <laughs> and what I realized after the fact, and I think I'm getting this name right, is that it was there's a filler, I think it was, that was used in these capsules, which was not on the label, called Emodin or something along those lines, which mm-hmm. also acts in high doses as a laxative. So I had to, I had to take a break from this initial like, description of the running test to just run down the hallway to this bathroom and basically like reverse broad jump into a stall and just stay there for like a half hour. And so I came out, needless to say, had the exact opposite effect of what I was going for. Uh, (laughs) What would have been a terrible running test anyway was 10 times worse. And so these things happen, right? And uh, I I mean, anyone who's kind of been in that, in the physical game long enough from a sports perspective has war stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the time you entered or you exited college, what was the what was the mountain in front of you? 
Did you know you wanted to start a business right right out of college, or what? What were you doing? Uh, I I did. I knew I wanted to start a business or run my own business, uh, which is always a dangerous, nebulous place to start. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the realizations that I had, uh, so a contributing factor, was that everyone at Princeton, and uh, it's it's a very odd place, Princeton, as are most of of the Ivy League schools and schools of that type, where you'd have, uh, in effect, at the time, two industries recruiting. Uh, for top talent. You had investment banks and management consulting firms. And there's nothing inherently wrong with either of those, but the idea that you could take 5,000 students and have them all compete for a single type of job, mm-hmm. basically high-paid photocopying, <laughs> that right. they're going to charge their for clients for $4 an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <clears throat> for 80 hours a week uh, is ridiculous. It's just ludicrous that that would be the right fit for everyone at such a school. But what are people who go to a place like Princeton good at? Or what do they obsess over? Competing. That's why they, in in large measure, why they've, got, they've had good grades, why they've had good SAT scores. They want to be the best in the class. So if the other best in the class are competing for a spot at McKinsey, they're going to do the same thing. And what I realized is, I, A, neither of those were a great fit for me. B, is that the industry mattered less than finding a small team, which to me was like 20 to 50 people, Mm -hmm. in a company that was very fast growing. So I ended up becoming a technical sales guy at a storage area networking company in Silicon Valley. Uh, Took 32, I think. I have these emails somewhere. It took like 32 emails to get this job. Uh, the company was very fast growing, learned a ton. I had a desk in the fire exit. Like literally I couldn't pull my chair back. Like my stomach was touching my desk because there was no room, complete violation. Uh, but that was the first, that was the first job and uh, learned a lot about negotiation and sales and long cycle, high ticket uh items and how you manage that process. It's, uh, I think that was a good training ground, a good boot camp for a lot of what came afterwards. And so how soon after that did you start your own supplement company? I started, uh, I started the, the sports nutrition company about a year, perhaps a year and a half later, somewhere between one and two years later, I started using my lunch breaks to uh, brainstorm ideas for starting my own thing. And what I did, which I think almost anyone can do, and I don't think everyone should start their own company, uh, although as an exercise maybe, as a life experience, I think it's worthwhile, but I think entrepreneurship is sometimes uh, romanticized um, mm-hmm. to an extent that is dangerous. But putting that aside, uh, what, I, what I did is I looked for an overlap of things I knew well and things I was completely price insensitive to myself. So I looked at my credit card statements and I looked at my expenses. Where was I spending (laughs) a disproportionate percentage of my income? And as you and I both know, sports supplements are expensive. I mean, they can be ridiculously expensive. And I was spending, I was making 40 grand a year pre-tax in California. And I was probably spending 
$400, $500 a month on supplements. It was outrageous, and, which is is fairly typical for a lot of, of people who are in competitive mode. Uh, it's it, it was just absurd. And so I was like, okay, well, I was you know, originally a neuroscience major at, at Princeton, then transferred to other stuff later. Uh, I think I have a better grasp on the science than a lot of folks. What if I were to take this this concoction that I put together for myself in college, <laughs> basically assembling it in my bathroom like uh, like a meth lab, <laughs> if I were to take that, make it more legal, add some fine tuning to it, and and sell that as a pre workout, as a as a neural accelerator, right? That was the the category that I wanted to create. So something that would help with neural drive and neurotransmitter production that would aid force output, et cetera. And uh, then I started making phone calls because I'd gotten really good at making phone calls. <laughs> and I knew how to talk to people who owned companies. So I started making phone calls to manufacturers, to contract biochemists, to all of these people, um, realizing pretty quickly that meeting them in person was a huge it was a bad idea because I was really young and I could, I could talk the talk on the phone. I could get deals done. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, I read all these books and they're like, when possible, like meet the prospect in person and do this, this, and this. And so I'd show up in my ill-fitting suit and I looked like the little kid and big, you know, (laughs) I just looked like a joke. So I realized very quickly, no, no in person, don't do in person. And, um, eventually when it came time, because I had, I had no money to fund any manufacturing. So I had to, A, sell the big picture, long-term story. Like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what my plans are. This is the scale that I'm planning on achieving. With I, I mean, I really had to pitch it. Like, I was pitching a venture capitalist to this distributor. Or not distributor, manufacturer. And then uh, to get the minimum order down. Right, I was like, just help me get started. I will stay with you. Which I did. Uh, and then... I went to my coworkers. <laughs> I just said, "Hey guys, I need a favor. I need to spread the burden a little bit here. I'm starting my own thing. It's a side gig, but I'm really excited about it. Can each of you just buy one bottle? Yeah. <laughs> and if it's terrible, like at the end of the day, if it's terrible, I will find a way to refund you." And they did. So that was like my my uh, my my like invoice factoring in a way, right? Like I took, I took that and I was able to get things started. Yeah. Those are, I don't know if I've ever told some of those stories, but those are, those are the, those were the early days (laughs) where you're throwing a lot against the wall to see what sticks. Well, and I think you're also, uh, through this period and, and, and running your own company, starting to develop some of your ideas about the four hour work week and confronting some of the issues that we're all uh, facing fundamentally, which is what I think that that book is about, just this information overload and the access everybody has to everybody all the time. Yeah, questioning the assumptions. And uh, in my case, I was in go, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve mode and was very good at being a workaholic. I mean, I could outwork anybody. I mean, at, this, at the startup, I, would, I literally slept under my desk woke up on Thanksgiving <laughs> to continue working. I mean, it was depressing. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, but like I could really, I could outwork. I mean, I, my bosses would, would send me home. They'd be like, Tim, you have to go home. And um, for me, you know, I ended up in 2004, I want to say it was, uh, destroying, 
just one relationship after the next. It's intimate relationships, right? So with women I, I was mm-hmm. dating. And this one girl I was dating at the time was, uh, you know, I expected we might get engaged. Like, it could be a big picture thing. And one day she just up and quit. She left. And it blindsided me, which should tell you how oblivious I was and uh, how, how little self-awareness I had at the time. And uh, I, I just, I, I, it was a reckoning of sorts for me. Um, she actually gave me a little fold out three paned photo holder from like target, one of those brush metal things. Uh-huh. And she created a little collage of sorts. It was me with a photograph of my head and then the rest of my body, I was in a suit and I was made out of <laughs> construction paper. I'm not making this up, holding a briefcase running with papers flying out of it. And then the other <laughs> side said business hours ended 5 PM. <laughs> and she's like, keep this just for your health. I was like, Oh God. And that was her dear John letter. So mm. at that point I decided that I would take a four week trip to London to get out of my current routine and away from reactive mode to redesign the business and extricate myself as a bottleneck or to shut the whole thing down. That was it. It was A or B. And that was really, I'd say, the, some of the origins. Uh, a, that, that is where a lot of the four-hour work week was developed. It was from that point forward. And it worked. And then I ended up extending my trip, and I was traveling the world for 18 months, and, and the business had never done better, and uh, ultimately sold that in 2009. So it came back to that child, childlike uh, perspective of questioning assumptions. Why? Like, why is it? Oh, yeah, I remember asking my dad when I was a kid, like, when the snow melts, where does the white go? You know, it's like just asking all these seemingly dumb questions that aren't dumb at all. They're just seldom, uh, at, well, maybe that one's dumb. But uh, the uh, asking the obvious questions questioning the assumptions is something that I think led to the four-hour work week, and it's led to pretty much everything since. You know, why do we have to do it this way? What if we did the opposite? But so your second book, um, you know, I'm, t- I'm taking a hard look at it the last couple of weeks, and I, you know, first of all, just sort of blown away at the rigor of your self-experimentation and, you know, the, the copious note-takings and the way you set up your own sort of trials on yourself. It's really fascinating. The other thing that really stands out to me is that that book, what, it came out in 2011 or... The Four Hour Body came out in 2010. 2010. Okay, so you you know, it was there's December a, December 2010. I'm pretty sure. A lot of what you're talking about in there is sort of hitting the mainstream now. I mean, the ketogenic diet is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the ice baths are starting to be everywhere, along with the Wim Hof breathing techniques. And um, I'm curious, you know, what, what do you see as the secret to uncovering that stuff? A few years ahead, you mentioned a lot. Um, sort of, you're, you're you're critical of the FDA and government agencies saying they're about ten years behind, and how the um, publisher perish model in uh, research sort of crimps a lot of of uh, researchers' ability to, to kind of get this stuff out ahead of time. But w- how do you tease the stuff that is out there out in, in into your area of focus? Yep. So let me mention a couple things. So the first is that you know the FDA, FTC, et cetera, all have very important roles, but they are trying to minimize the damage of any, including deaths, of any type of, say, drug that is released to potentially millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. 
they have to account for all of the outlying cases that might suffer from something that may or may not affect you negatively in the least, right? So there's there are people there are people who are allergic to warfarin, right? God, mm-hmm. hey, we have, we have to identify that there are potential adverse effects to warfarin. Doesn't mean that you're going to, and you probably are not allergic to warfarin. Uh, but, and by the way, folks, I'm not, not a doctor, don't play one on the internet, so <clears throat> get professional medical advice for everything. But the, uh, the way you tease it out is number one, realizing that as William Gibson said in Neuromancer, I think it was, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but along those lines, like the ketogenic diet has been around for at least 50 years and was uh, really honed with epileptic children, right? Yeah, I think that was in the 20s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's out there. It's been out there for a long, long time. And ice baths, same story, right? Now, the scientific understanding of how certain tools like these uh, or cystis quadrangularis, right, some of these supplements that I kind of introduced to a larger mainstream audience they're out there. Uh, the applications are sometimes new, right? And the way that you tease those out is pretty simple. You find experts and you have them help you find other experts and you dig really, really deep and you ask the dumb questions. Uh, so I have a set of maybe 10 questions that I will ask, uh, that I will ask experts in anything. And People don't assume it's hard to get a hold of experts. <laughs> Many researchers are more than happy mm-hmm. to pick up the phone and talk to someone who's excited about their research. Whether you find them on PubMed, which is a resource I use for looking at studies, for instance, or abstracts. Whether you find them on PubMed, whether you find them uh, through a university directory. Uh, a lot of people will be happy to talk to you as long as you're rational and don't waste their time and have good questions. So in in my particular case, you know, there are certain questions where if it's say a if it's a runner or a basketball coach or a surfing coach or a professional surfer, they just need to be good at what they're doing. Then I will ask them questions like, you know, who is good at this who shouldn't be good at this? In other words, if everyone who does ultra endurance running is built like a spider and 6 foot 2, are there any five foot eight, 250 pound, 250 pound people who are good at ultra endurance running? Uh, now, the, and every question has a reason behind it. In that case, I'm looking to identify outliers mm, who have mm-hmm. who have used training to overcome handicapping attributes. Mm-hmm. Because very often you find the opposite. You have people with incredible attributes, and those attributes compensate for mediocre training. Right. Uh, I mean, in the NFL, you see this all the time. You see guys with completely ripped, probably 5% body fat, and their meals are Burger King for breakfast, Wendy's for lunch, McDonald's for dinner. I'm not kidding. I mean, it's just like their genetics are so out of control, favorable, that they can get away with that. So you don't want to study them. Uh, You don't want to study the the genetic mutants necessarily. Right. So that's question number one. Question number two would be potentially, I have a, a bunch of these questions, but. You know, if you, if you, who are the most controversial trainers in X and Y, what do you think of them? And if they, if the person I'm talking to has been able to produce 
really good results for themselves and they're not a coach, I'll ask, have you ever taught anyone else to do this? Have you been able to replicate this with anyone? What are the challenges that you've had? What are the biggest wastes of time that you see novices committing in X, mm. right? But in the case of something like powerlifting, for instance, something like that, I would ask, if you had eight weeks, I know it's impossible, I know it it's probably takes six months or six years, but if you had eight weeks to prepare me for X, right, or to try to maximize Y, and the prize was $10 million to you if you could do it, what would you do? I know it's impossible, I know it's a ridiculous time frame, but what would you do if you had to? And um, that's a forcing function question. Right. It's uh, and you get some incredible, incredible feedback. Um, and another thing that's that's interesting to me about the book is um, there's a real vanity angle in there. And and outside, you know, we, we always try to distinguish ourselves for being sort of anti six pack abs that fitness isn't really a means for looking good, but more for a lifetime of adventure. But are, are we just sort of fooling ourselves with that? Is, is, is vanity and, and cash maybe the only incentive that we should, we should care about that's really going to motivate <laughs> well, us in the end? Just to, just to clarify, so you, by, by vanity you mean I, I use... Well, there's a real vanity. aspect of like this is going to make you look good. Well, I think the four-hour body is probably 90% performance, but mm -hmm. there's I recognize that most people particularly if my audience is 87% male, which it is, they want to get laid. They want to have more sex. Mm -hmm. They want to be attractive. Uh, or they want their, you know, ma male or female, they want, they, they want their ass to look good in jeans. Uh, and you can sell, for instance, I think adventure and so on are actually pretty, pretty good tools for behavioral incentives also. But the more concrete that I can be, the more I can create a clear benefit and image in someone's mind, the easier it will be for me to dangle a carrot in front of them or a stick behind them and get them to do something that they are not inclined to do, right? So if, if someone has failed on every diet they've ever tested before, uh, I'm going to want them to have as much positive feedback early on as possible. And I will construct a diet for that to be the case. I also want them to enjoy it to the extent possible for the first time ever. Mm. He hence things like cheat day. You're talking to people around here about the interview, what they really want to know is can you really eat whatever you want on cheat day? Yes, you can eat and you should eat anything that you want on cheat day. That's absolutely correct. And the point is, among other things, for it to serve as a psychological release valve. I mean, people are going to cheat if they follow what they would consider a strict diet, which is, of course, relative to where they start. Mm -hmm. So by pre-scheduling it, you can limit the damage. It makes it easier to adhere to the diet. So I've met some folks, for instance, last year I met a guy who'd lost 200 pounds, and he kept a to-eat list for the week because he knew he was only giving up the things that he craved for six days. So he literally carried around like a to-do list or a grocery <laughs> list, a to-eat list, and he would create a list of all of the junk foods that he wanted to eat, and then he would knock them off one at a time on cheat day. day. And uh, by in, in so I don't think of it so much as... Uh, I'm not a moral purist when it comes to motivations. Um, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if someone's motivated by money, 
fantastic. Let's let's use money. Let's have them do a put together a betting pool with five friends, hundred dollars each. Whoever loses the most body fat is measured by DEXA scan, not weight on a scale, because then people are going to do unhealthy things. But like body composition changes over eight weeks. Five friends put in a hundred bucks. Each winner gets gets the entire uh, pot. Right. People will work so much harder to not lose $100 than they will ever work to make $100. And particularly when you have bragging rights and smack-talking rights and everything that goes along with it. So that's a very, very effective approach. It's extremely effective. It could be looked at as crass, but I don't care about that. So I think that you need to match the motivation to the person. But if we're looking at the at, at the the masses, right? If we're thinking about hundreds of millions of people in the US, I would say that generally, yeah, it's it's more money, nice things, more sex. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. And the beauty of selling appearance or using appearance is that there is there's no one there are very few people who who don't want to look better. <laughs> Some people may care more or less or not at all about performance. Right. Uh, so I use all of the tools in the toolkit. Uh, but the vast majority, if you look at like their chapters on hacking the NFL combine in the four hour body, right. Or breath holding or vertical jump or, uh, fill in the blank. Uh, so, so most of it is performance oriented, but I use the strongest, most primal, even if they seem perverse incentives as the Trojan horse to then get people to do the other stuff later. Well, another another thing I'm struck by in that book is, um, you know, how much of yourself you, you sort of literally laid bare. I mean, you've got your before and after pictures in several places, and you talk about your sex life and um, all and of blood your va- blood values. Your, in there. Yeah, I was just going to say all your blood values are, you know, throughout is I, I, I think in part that's part of the, the secret of that success was that it, it came out at a time when that kind of life casting is, is was sort of exploding but there was a just a, a, a raw honesty to it and i wonder how difficult that was to put yourself out there like that uh i i didn't find it difficult uh to to provide that information uh it, it wasn't anything that i felt was compromising and in in many cases you know i'm showing people that improvement is possible so I didn't just showcase the good stuff, <laughs> as you might notice, right? That's like, if I if I make a huge mistake or if uh, I have a blood value that's extremely out of whack, and I feel like I've been being healthy, I feel like I've been healthy and it shouldn't be out of whack. Let's look at that because many many people have this experience, right? They they change a the diet, they go to the vegan diet, and then they come back eight weeks later and their cholesterol is skyrocketed. And uh, they have, they're just besides themselves with frustration, right? And uh, I do not recommend a, a vegan diet for a lot of reasons, but y- y- people try to do the right thing. And then when they get the, f- the data back, oftentimes realize they're trending in the wrong direction. So how do we fix it? Like that happens. It almost always happens to people who are experimenting with stuff. So uh, like, let's learn not to emotionally overreact to that and to address it and to be honest with ourselves, right? And I, 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 part of the reason I think that the 4-Hour Body and the slow-carb diet and so on has helped so many people to lose body fat and to lose lose tremendous amounts of weight. I mean, there's a blog post I wrote called uh, How to Lose 100 Pounds on the Slow-Carb Diet, and it's just full of case studies of people who have lost 100-plus pounds. 
is that I don't sugarcoat it. I'm just like, look, guys, people are fat because they eat like fat people. And it's a solvable problem. And there's a toolkit that I can provide to you. And the data suggests that you will lose up to 20 pounds in the first four weeks of body fat and, of course, water weight if you follow these rules and are above this weight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So I can lay it out. And I'm like, A, I have the data. I'm not just trying to sell you on a pipe dream. B, I'm not asking you to buy some expensive program or supplement or anything like that. Like this is this this can be done with uh, for less than five dollars a meal, and uh, and I encourage people to be honest with themselves first because I think it was Richard Feynman, the physicist, who said you know the most important thing is not to fool ourselves, and we are the most we are the easiest person to fool. <laughs> mm-hmm. So by putting myself out there, I hope people. I hope that it encourages, and it seems to have worked, people to just be very honest in self-assessment. Because without knowing your baseline, without understanding where you are, you can't get to where you want to go. Um, there's been kind of a resurgence recently, I think, in the use of psychedelics, um, especially in some of the Silicon Valley circles. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if that's part of your self experimentation i know that you you're helping crowdsource uh, a study with psychedelics at johns hopkins i believe for depression yep. um yep. Tell, t- tell us a little bit about uh, your, your interest there and um where you see that going yeah psychedelics are a very primary focus of mine right now uh facilitating research uh looking at how for instance psilocybin can be used in treatment resistant depression uh, which is extremely, extremely promising. That's at Johns Hopkins, uh, doing some additional work at a handful of other universities, very name-brand, top research institutes around the country. Uh, I the, Some of the most important work that I've done on myself in the last, say, three to four years have involved judicious, supervised use of different psychedelics. And I, I feel as though these compounds are as unfairly maligned and politicized uh, as they are effective uh, and relatively low in terms of risks and side effects. Many of these are uh, counter-addictive. So uh, Ibogaine, for instance, or Iboga, it's a West African root. Uh, It might might actually be bark, but I think it's root, used by the Bwiti tribe. Uh, traditionally is extremely effective. This this is one of the riskier uh, compounds, but very effective for getting heroin addicts or opiate addicts off of their uh, drugs and mm-hmm. ending addiction uh, with next to no or no physical withdrawal symptoms. It is, it is just an incredible uh, tool in the toolkit for some of these people with severe addictions. And... Uh, in the case of Ibogaine, there are risks. Like one, I think, in every 300 or so people uh, will die of a cardiac event. It has the potential, if unsupervised in particular, to cause cardiac, fatal cardiac events. But if you look at, say, psilocybin, or you look at uh, ayahuasca, which is a, a little trickier because it's not a single molecule we're talking about. It's more of a cocktail, like an old-fashioned. Uh, have the potential... Or if you were, if you are to listen to many people who have had these experiences, has the potential to not only address addictions uh, and different compulsive behaviors, but to really compress, say, fifteen years of therapy into five hours. I mean, it's mm. <laughs> it, it is 
it is profound what you can see in terms of changes in people uh, with uses of these compounds. And there are different theories as to why that's the case. Um, psychedelics are, are one of these... Uh, well, let me, let me give, it, give an analogy. So I think Warren Buffett once said, you know, if people asked me the fastest way to become rich, I would close my eyes and slowly point to Wall Street. Something like that. <laughs> I feel very similarly about psilocybin or... <laughs> psychedelics and that is I hesitate and I do not recommend them for everyone for all reasons certainly do not recommend them in an unsupervised capacity and at the same time I recognize that perhaps more than anything else that I've done in the last three or four years if you're looking to address any type of obsessive compulsive behavior including thought patterns uh, emotions that are reactive, that are damaging, like anger, depression, etc. cetera. Uh, even uh, end-of-life anxiety in terminal cancer patients, these compounds are, it can be incredibly powerful. They can also be incredibly dangerous. I mean, you take, if you take a hallucinogen and you're not in a safe environment, I mean, it is entirely possible that you would think you could fly and step out of a window and kill yourself. It's, mm. it's, these, these are very, very powerful and should be treated as such. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, I, I'm very, I feel very strongly about allocating my resources in large measure to facilitating research of these compounds uh, because it's, they, they were blocked, really, uh, from being investigated properly for a period of 20, 30 years. And due to unfair, very unfair, unwarranted scheduling, uh, they're in the same class as heroin and cocaine. So it makes it not only very difficult to to use and procure in a supervised setting, uh, but very difficult to research. Uh, research. It's hard for, uh, say, researchers at universities to procure this stuff. It's very time-consuming and can be very, very expensive. So yeah, I'm tackling that on a bunch of fronts. Do you find that um, your advocacy for this and um, your recent discussions about this is that your audience is having a harder time being receptive to this or, or are they just as open um, to what you're talking about here? Just simply because I think it is a drug that for so long, or, or most not a drug, you know, all psychedelics, I think, have had um, been viewed and been managed, um, you know, from a legal standpoint, um, in, in a very harsh way for a long time. Yeah, I found my audience has been, if anything, more engaged since I started talking about this. I haven't seen, I've seen next to no negative blowback. And it's, it's extremely hard to criticize. I mean, if you look at the use of, say, and I, I'm not a personal user of MDMA, but if you look at the, the use of MDMA in PTSD and war vets, for instance, it's astonishing how effective it can be. If you look at the use of psilocybin or even LSD, although I'm not a personal user of LSD, for eliminating nicotine uh, or cigarette addiction, right, smoking, alcoholism, it is it is unbelievable. It, it is so many magnitudes of order more effective than any other existing treatment available. It boggles the mind. Uh, Where can one get that kind of treatment now? Uh, to my knowledge, you can't uh, mm. in the U.S. Uh, you, would, you would need to go to a clinic in another country. Uh, mm. And there are clinics that exist for 
uh, in different capacities in Canada, some in Mexico, et cetera. But yeah, that's um, that the, the options are very limited. So I would like to get to a point. And in fact, the founder of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous achieved sobriety after use of psychedelics. I think it was, uh, it might have been the Amanita muscaria mushroom or something like that, and wanted to include psychedelics as one of the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Needless to say, they didn't make it in. But uh, these these are very, very powerful. And uh, I, I would also encourage people to realize that like anything you put in your body, on your skin, in your mouth, that has any type of effect <laughs> whatsoever, <laughs> that is not inert, is a drug. That's mm-hmm. it. You eat a banana, it's a drug. And uh, I'm, I'm constantly amused by uh, people who, uh, and, and there aren't that many, honestly, that I've run into, but some people who are who, who have strong opinions about psychedelics without knowing anything about them and, and want to go on the attack, and they're drinking three 700-calorie frappuccinos mm. from Starbucks every day. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, no, you don't use any drugs. No, never. Was really? it something like, for you personally that you were initially skeptical about? Or, or were you very open-minded about the use of psychedelics? I'm, I'm very open-minded about yeah. it and, and always have been. I, I think that, well, I shouldn't say always. Early on, you know, thinking of drugs, right, as... Um, I mean, drug, supplement, food, et cetera, the, these are all drugs if we look at them as, as how I just defined it. And for me, uh, I mean, I, I really, I didn't view ECA stack as drugs, right? Because it was easy to procure, it was legal, did far more damage to me than I've ever done with psychedelics. I mean, by 100x, 1,000x. <laughs> and... Uh, so I, I've always been open to it, but the the fact that there are there is a there is a history of millennia of human use of these compounds leads me to uh, be very very curious more so than skeptical. I mean, it's it's scratching some type of itch, it's satisfying some type of need, or it's assisting in some fundamental way that has persisted for thousands of years, maybe tens of thousands or more, that is of great interest to me. Uh, for the same reason that things like fasting are of interest to me. But I, want, I, but I would like to take these things that have been used for thousands of years and apply a scientific lens to them so that we can better understand them, better use them, get better results with fewer risks, etc. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for taking the time. Tim Ferriss, talking with Outside Editor-in-Chief, Chris Guys. The Outside Interview is produced by me, Peter Frickwright, and Robbie Carver, with original music by Robbie. If you're new to the show, we do a whole other kind of podcast series called The Science of Survival, where instead of interviewing celebrities and journalists, we ask questions like, what's it like to freeze to death or get struck by lightning? Can a human being survive two days underwater in a bubble? Some are fun, some are sad. Every single one of them is life and death. You should check them out. Our brand new website is outsideonline.com podcast. We'll be back in two weeks.